Why don't you get a comfortable seat and let's get our Bibles out. Let's turn to Exodus chapter 35. Exodus chapter 35. This morning we studied two words. Tonight we're going to study six chapters. So we got to get moving. Exodus chapter 35. Now, in Exodus chapters 25 through 31, God instructs Moses to erect a tent. Tonight's chapters, chapters 35 to 40, record the steps that Moses takes to follow through on those instructions. In between, chapters 32 through 34 are really our parenthetical passage. On the mountaintop, Moses basks in God's truth. At the base of the mountain, trouble brews. So if you want an outline for the last half of Exodus, here it is. It's the truth above, it's the trouble below, and it's the tent in between. In fact, this is a great outline for all of human history. The truth of God above... The trouble with sin below and the place where a troubled man can be reconciled to a truthful God and that is at the true tabernacle, Jesus Christ. Above all, this is what the tabernacle in the wilderness foreshadowed. The person and work of Jesus Christ. Recall in John 1 verse 14, John draws on this symbolism when he says this of Jesus. The Word became flesh and tabernacled among us. Hebrews 10, verse 19 and 20 makes another statement. Therefore, brethren, having boldness to enter the holiest, that's the holy of holies, that's what we've been talking about in the tabernacle, by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way, which he consecrated for us through the veil that is his flesh. Here we learn that the veil that divided the tabernacle actually prefigured The torn and crucified body of Jesus. That's why I say the tabernacle, its material, its furniture, its configuration, all speaks of Jesus Christ. Now before we plunge into tonight's chapters, let's review why a study of the tabernacle is so significant. I want to give you at least four reasons. First, the tabernacle was God's dwelling on the earth. That alone makes it important. Heaven is God's throne, but the tabernacle... It was his footstool. For 500 years, the tabernacle was the one designated meeting place between God and man. The second reason it's important to study is according to Hebrews 9 verse 23, the tabernacle was in reality a small scale model of heaven itself. In fact, if you want a preview, if you want a little prior glimpse of what we're going to see in heaven, then study the tabernacle. The third reason is that the tabernacle gives us insights into how we should approach God. The tabernacle, remember, had but one gate, and there's only one way to God, through Jesus. Just inside the court, the first thing you come to is the altar of burnt offering, the altar of sacrifice, and we too become fit for God's presence only after we've trusted in the sacrifice of Jesus. Then the laver, then the menorah, then the bread of showbread, all these things relate to our relationship with God, and we grow by studying the tabernacle. 
And the fourth reason we should study the tabernacle, as we've already mentioned, is that it speaks to us of the person and work of our Lord Jesus. It was God's dwelling on earth, as was Jesus. It was unattractive on the outside, but it was beautiful on the inside, just like Jesus. It was the one place where man could meet with God on the earth, the same with Jesus. It was where sacrifice for sin was made, and Jesus was our ultimate sacrifice. It was the center of the camp. Likewise, Jesus needs to be the center of our lives. And if you, in, in order to get to the tabernacle, you had to pass through the tribe of Judah. And that's interesting because Judah, the camp of Judah was just outside the gate. And likewise, in order for us to get to Jesus, we have to come through the tribe of Judah. Jesus was born of the tribe of Judah. And we could go on and on. Needless to say, the tabernacle gives us insight into the person and work of Jesus Christ. Now understand, God's priorities are not our priorities. There are about a half a dozen chapters in the Bible that talk about the creation of the heavens and the earth. There's another handful of chapters that discuss the resurrection of Jesus. And I don't know about you, but I think of both those subjects and I would like more detail. Lord, I'd love for you to explain to me the physics of the universe. I'd love to know more about the mechanics of the resurrection. But God spends just a few chapters on those subjects, whereas he spends nearly 50 chapters on the tabernacle. One author estimates that 10% of the Bible deals with the Old Testament tabernacle. Obviously, the tabernacle is a big deal to God, and that alone makes it worthy of our study. Well, chapter 35 begins. Then Moses gathered all the congregation of the children of Israel together and said to them, these are the words which the Lord has commanded you to do. Work shall be done for six days, but the seventh day shall be a holy day for you, a Sabbath of rest to the Lord. Whoever does any work on it shall be put to death. Now obviously this is not the first time Moses has communicated the Sabbath laws, but here its placement makes it specifically significant. For Moses is about to organize and mobilize for tabernacle construction. This is monumental work. This is of tremendous importance. But even when you're doing monumental work, it's still no reason to slough off on the Sabbath. God did not design the human body and the human psyche to work seven days unabated. He has wired us for one day of rest in seven. And if we don't acknowledge that, we will eventually short-circuit. We need one day in seven to worship or we'll lose our spiritual edge. And notice the punishment for Sabbath violation. Verse 2, whoever does any work on it shall be put to death. In ancient Israel, a Sabbath breaker was executed by stoning. Today he dies due to high blood pressure and a heart attack. So don't fight God. If you don't take a break, you're going to end up broken. And note verse 3. Remember this verse when you run across a Seventh-day Adventist who's taken a common sense principle, the Sabbath rest, and turned it into some legalistic trip. You know, some people believe that we're under the law. And unless we worship on the Jewish Sabbath, which is Saturday, we're headed for hell. But ask that person this question. How do you get to church? 
And if they say by car, then quote them Exodus 35 verse 3. You shall kindle no fire throughout your dwellings on the Sabbath day. You know that when you crank your car, you're kindling a fire in your dwellings. You are breaking the Sabbath rules and the Sabbath violations. Hey, just because you go to church on Saturday doesn't mean you keep the Sabbath law. Crank your car, fire your engine, and you've done work on the Sabbath day and you've broken the law. In other words, if you live under the law, you've got to keep it all. That's why we are saved, not by law, but by grace through faith. Aren't you glad? Verse 4. And Moses spoke to all the congregation of the children of Israel, saying, This is the thing which the Lord commanded, saying, Take from among you an offering to the Lord. Whoever is of a willing heart, let him bring it as an offering to the Lord. And notice the key to all of our giving. A willing heart. This is why Paul writes to the Corinthians in 2 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 7. So let each one give as he proposes in his heart. Not grudgingly or of necessity, for God loves a cheerful giver. You know, on Sundays when we count the offering, our handwriting specialists look for signatures that appear to be forced or pressured. And if you give under compulsion, we'll probably send your check back to you in the mail. Whether it's our money or our time or our service, God always wants it. To come from a willing heart. When you give to God, make sure you do so freely and generously. Now here's what the people gave. A total of 15 items. Gold, which speaks of glory. Silver, which speaks of redemption. Bronze, judgment. Blue, heaven. Purple, royalty. Scarlet thread, which reminds us of the sacrificial blood. Fine linen, which speaks of holiness. Goat's hair or atonement. Ram skin dyed red, substitution. Badger skin or protection. Acacia wood, which reminds us of humanity. Oil for the light. You know what that symbolizes. The Holy Spirit. Spices for the anointing oil and for the sweet incense. That should remind us of prayer. Onyx stones and stones to be set in the ephod and in the breastplate. And remember, these expensive jewels, they they spoke of the 12 tribes of Israel. Even today, I think, God sees his people as precious stones and as expensive jewels. Guys, we are God's valuables. I hope you never forget that. Well, verses 10 through 19 provide us an itemized list of tabernacle parts and pieces. And it could be that whenever Israel moved the tabernacle, they would turn to verse 10 and they would review this list. They would consult it to make sure that all the components had been packed up. He says, All who are gifted artisans among you shall come and make all that the Lord has commanded. The tabernacle, its tent, its covering, its clasps, its boards, its bars, its pillars, and its sockets. The ark and its poles with the mercy seat and the veil of the covering. The table and its poles, all its utensils and the showbread. Also the lampstand for the light, its utensils, its lamps and the oil for the light. The incense altar, its poles, the anointing oil, the sweet incense and the screen for the door at the entrance of the tabernacle. This all sounds like a packing list, doesn't it? 
the altar of burnt offering with its bronze grating, its poles, all its utensils, and the laver in its base, the hangings of the court, its pillars, their sockets, and the screen for the gate of the court, the pegs of the tabernacle, the pegs of the court, and their cords, all tents have to have pegs. The garments of ministry for ministering in the holy place, the holy garments for Aaron, the priest, and the garments of his sons to minister as priests. The idea was not to leave a single item behind. Every detail mattered to God. Reminds me of the new surgery room nurse. She was completing her first day on the job. And the surgeon was just about to close up the patient when the nurse stopped him and said, Doctor, you've only removed 11 sponges. You used 12. The experienced doctor, he responded, No, I removed all the sponges. I want you to close up the incision right now. But this young nurse, she was insistent. She said, No, I counted. You used 12 sponges, and I only have 11 right here on my tray. Well, the doctor was getting kind of frustrated, and so he said, Look, I'm taking full responsibility for this. Suture the patient right now. Well, this nurse couldn't stand it. And at the risk of losing her job, this rookie nurse argued, Doctor, you can't do that. Think of your patient's welfare. And that's when the surgeon smiled and he lifted his foot, revealing the twelfth sponge that had been under his shoe. And that's when he said to the nurse, Congratulations, you passed the test. Some jobs require people who are attentive to detail. And the same is true with serving God. If the construction of the tabernacle teaches us nothing else, it hammers home the truth that details, that little things, that seemingly insignificant and trivial things really do matter to God. Well, verse 20 tells us, And all the congregation of the children of Israel departed from the presence of Moses, then everyone came whose heart was stirred and everyone whose spirit was willing. And they brought the Lord's offering for the work of the tabernacle of meeting, for all its service, and for the holy garments. They came, both men and women, as many as had a willing heart, and brought earrings and nose rings and rings and necklaces, all jewelry of gold, that is, every man who made an offering of gold to the Lord. You know, we've actually had people come and bring expensive rings and jewelry and donate them to the church as an offering to the Lord. Pastor James had to take some stuff down and hock it at the pawn shop. And every man with whom was found purple, blue, scarlet thread, fine linen and goat's hair, red skins of rams and badger skins brought them. And we've had people donate threads and clothing that we've in turn distributed to the poor. We usually see more polyester than we see badger skins and goat's hair, but both works. Everyone who offered an offering of silver or bronze brought the Lord's offering, and they received a receipt that showed the IRS what they could deduct from their taxable. No, 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 that's going to come later, okay? And everyone with whom was found acacia wood for any work of the service brought it, all the women who were gifted artisans spun yarn with their hands and brought what they had spun of blue, purple, and scarlet, and fine linen. 
And all the women whose hearts stirred with wisdom spun yarn of goat's hair. The rulers brought onyx stones and the stones to be set in the ephod and in the breastplate and spices and oil for the light, for the anointing oil and for the sweet incense. The children of Israel brought a freewill offering to the Lord, all the men and women whose hearts were willing to bring material for all kinds of work which the Lord by the hand of Moses had commanded to be done. Verse 30. And Moses said to the children of Israel, See, the Lord has called by name Bezalel, the son of Uri, the son of Hur, of the tribe of Judah. And he has filled him with the Spirit of God in wisdom and understanding and knowledge and in all manner of workmanship to design artistic works, to work in gold and silver and bronze, in cutting jewels for setting, in carving wood, and to work in all manner of artistic workmanship. God gave to Bezalel supernatural gifts, spiritual gifts, that enabled him to work with wood and metal and stones and to craft artistic designs. Hey, when you put together a list of spiritual gifts, don't just include prophecy and healing and tongues and teaching and administration. Add woodworking and metal molding and stone setting. Craftsmanship, you see, can also be a spiritual gift. Well, a similar gift was given to Aholiab, verse 34. And God has put in his heart the ability to teach in him and Aholiab, the son of Ahizamach of the tribe of Dan. He has filled them with skill to do all manner of work of the engraver and the designer and the tapestry maker in blue, purple, and scarlet thread and fine linen and of the weaver those who do every work and those who design artistic works. Notice engraving, needlepoint, sewing were also spiritual gifts. You know, I've got some beautiful needlepoint and, you know, little rug works and all with designs on them and so forth in my office that some of the ladies have made and given to me on special occasions. And I treasure those things. The wonderful Blessings, And they communicate valuable things to, to us. It could be that God's given you a spiritual gift of needlepoint. Who knows? It's also significant here that Bezalel was from the tribe of, anybody see it? Judah. Aholiab was of the tribe of Dan. That meant that neither of them were a priest. Neither were Levites. They were ordinary Joes, in other words. You know, sometimes we think that if we can't preach or if we can't sing or if we can't pray, you know, we can't do anything for the Lord. But these people weren't professional servants of God. They weren't preachers and singers and so forth. These people were gifted to serve God in practical ways. You know, maybe God hasn't given you the gift of preaching, but maybe he's given you the gift of wiring or the gift of weed eating. Or servicing air conditioners. Or running a soundboard. Or cooking pancakes. Or wiping down tables and moving chairs. These gifts are just as inspired by the Holy Spirit as leading worship or teaching a Bible study. And just as needed, I might add, in the body of Christ. Chapter 36. 
and Bezalel and Aholiab, and every gifted artisan in whom the Lord has put wisdom and understanding to know how to do all manner of work for the service of the sanctuary shall do according to all that the Lord has commanded. And I want you to notice the tabernacle design was too important to leave up to man's imagination. Everything was to be done according to what the Lord commanded. Guys, this is also true in the church. We, don't, we need to remember that it's the Lord who builds the church. It's His plan. It's His strategy. It's His blueprint. The Lord doesn't need our creativity. He has a plan. Our job is to simply follow orders. Do all that the Lord has commanded. Then Moses called Bezalel and Aholiab and every gifted artisan in whose heart the Lord had put wisdom, everyone whose heart was stirred to come and to do the work. And they received from Moses all the offering which the Lord, which the children of Israel had brought for the work of the service of making the sanctuary. And so they continued bringing to him free will offerings every morning. God not only supplied the workers, but he also supplied the wealth. You remember when the Hebrews left Egypt, these Egyptians were so glad to see them go that they gave the Israelites gifts of gold and silver. It was more or less a voluntary plunder. But now God calls his people to turn over those gifts for his purposes. And their response is both incredible and admirable. Chapter 36, verses 4 through 7 is one of my favorite passages in all the Bible. It says, Then all the craftsmen who were doing all the work of the sanctuary came, each from the work he was doing, and they spoke to Moses, saying, The people bring much more than enough for the service of the work which the Lord commanded us to do. So Moses gave a commandment, and they caused it to be proclaimed throughout the camp, saying, let neither man nor woman do any more work for the offering of the sanctuary. And the people were restrained from bringing, for the material they had was sufficient for all the work to be done, indeed too much. God's people gave so much for the work of the tabernacle that Moses had to say, stop. Can you imagine? He had to tell the people, stop giving. We've got more than enough. Did you hear about the conversation between the $1 bill and the $100 bill? This $1 bill asked his buddy, he says, you know, where you been lately? And the $100 bill answered, he said, well, I've been hanging out in a few casinos and actually went on a cruise and just got back into the United States and I went to a few basketball games and a couple of baseball games and I've been to the mall, you know, that kind of stuff. How about you? And that's when the $1 bill complained. Oh, it's the same old, same old church, church, church. <laughs> Moses had the opposite problem with his congregation. They gave too much. They were into giving those $100 bills rather than just those $1 bills. I look forward to the day here at Calvary Chapel when the elders come to me and they say, Pastor Sandy, tell the people to stop. We've got too much money now. Just tell the people to stop giving. We've got all that we need. That hasn't happened yet, by the way. But I'm looking forward to the day when it does. It thrills God when His people are so in love with Him, so grateful for all that He's done, that they're willing to give more than enough to support the work. 
Guys, there's not a week that goes by that I don't receive an offer in the mail from a professional fundraiser who wants to come into the church. He promises that he can raise money, that he can raise the capital that we, capital that we need to build that new gym we've been talking about down in the lower parking lot or to expand the radio ministry or to enlarge our Sunday school program or whatever. And they have all of their gimmicks and all of their programs. But I believe that if we will simply teach God's word and show God's love and trust the Holy Spirit to stir up willing hearts that God will provide not only what we need, but even more than what we need. And in 25 years, I guess we've never had too much, but we've always had enough. And God has been faithful. Verse 8. Then all the gifted artisans among them who worked on the tabernacle made ten curtains woven of fine linen and of purple, blue, and scarlet thread. With artistic designs of cherubim, they made them. Now the holy place was covered with four tarps, each of them made of a different material. Colorful linen was covered by goat's hair. And then the goat's hair tarp was covered by ram skin dyed red. And then that was covered by this ugly, dark badger skin. Which means that you couldn't see the beauty in the tabernacle unless you were on the inside. Inside, you could see the gold boards and the colorful tapestry made from fine linen with the blue and the purple and the scarlet thread and the cherubim embroidered into the tapestry. But from the outside, all you could see was this ugly, dark, uncouth badger skin. Think about it. This was also true of Jesus. Inwardly, he was divine. He radiated glory. He was beautiful. Yet outwardly, Isaiah 53 provides us this description. Jesus has no form nor comeliness. And when we see him, there is no beauty that we should desire him. He was like the tabernacle. You remember, it wasn't until the Mount of Transfiguration when, when the Lord allowed the glory inside to shine outside that people were impressed by His appearance. Prior to that, He was an ordinary, looked like an ordinary person. It wasn't until you got on the inside that you could see His divinity and His beauty and His glory. But the Christian is also a lot like the tabernacle. Think about this. Outsiders, unbelievers... People with only a carnal outlook. They wonder why we've pledged our lives, our whole lives, to the cause of a crucified Christ. It doesn't make sense to them. You see, it only makes sense to those who are on the inside. Those who've embraced Jesus. Those who are in Christ. Those who are experiencing the spiritual treasures and pleasures that are only found in Jesus Christ. We see it. We know it's beautiful. We know we're in on a good deal because we're on the inside. From the outside, it looks uncouth. They don't understand. But from the inside, the beauty, the glory is evident. Well, Moses continues. The length of each curtain was 28 cubits. Remember, a cubit. How, how long was a cubit? 18 inches. Good. A foot and a half. And the width of each curtain, four cubits. The curtains were all the same size. And he coupled five curtains to one another, and the other five curtains he coupled to one another. He made loops of blue yarn on the edge of the curtain, on the selvage of one set. Likewise, he did on the outer edge of the other curtain of the second set, 
50 loops he made on one curtain and 50 loops he made on the edge of the curtain on the end of the second set. The loops held one curtain together and he made 50 clasps of gold and coupled the curtains to one another with the clasps that it might be one tabernacle. Sounds like you're following a set of instructions that came with the bicycle set there. Verse 14 through 19 describe the other three coverings that now go over the linen tarp. Next, Moses describes the acacia wood paneling that makes up the sides of the holy place. And each board was 10 cubits, which was 15 feet tall by 27 inches wide. Verse 22 describes their tongue and groove connectors, or their tenons, as it's called. Verse 30 mentions the silver sockets in which they set. The sockets stabilized the boards. And then verse 31 describes the bars that provided the boards and supported them from the side angle. Now I'm going to scan a lot tonight because we've already talked about a lot of these things in depth. We've even showed pictures. In fact, I think we're showing pictures tonight. Remember the animation we showed a few weeks ago even? So you've gone over this. You know this. And yet these verses also give us a few extra details. So we're going to cover what's what hasn't been covered up to this point. But, but I do want you to note one point here. God takes nothing for granted. Apparently, these details were very important to him. So much so that he repeats them for emphasis. You know, it's been said, repetition is the mother of learning. And it's true. Some things we don't learn unless they're repeated to us. Our tendency is to forget which is why some truths have to be repeated over and over again. You remember toward the end of his ministry, Peter wrote a second letter. And in 2 Peter chapter 1, he says, For this reason I will not be negligent to remind you always of these things, though you know and are established in the truth. In other words, they didn't need any new knowledge. They just needed to be reminded of the things they already knew. Reminds me of the man who complained to his pastor. He says, every week you preach on the same subject. Love one another. Can't you find something else to preach on? And that's when the pastor responded, good friend, I'll be happy to preach on another subject as soon as my flock starts to love one another. Verse 35 describes the veil that separated the holy place from the holy of holies. Verse 36, the four golden posts that stood right outside the Holy of Holies. Verse 37 through 38 describes the construction of the door or the screen that stood as an entrance into the holy place and the five pillars from which it hung. Chapter 37 tells us, Then Bezalel made the ark of acacia wood. Two and a half cubits was its length, a cubit and a half its width, and a cubit and a half its height. The Ark of the Covenant. What are its dimensions? It was 45 inches long, almost 4 feet, by 27 inches wide, by 27 inches deep. He overlaid it with pure gold inside and outside and made a molding of gold all around it. And he cast for it four rings of gold to be set in its four corners, two rings on one side and two rings on the other side, and he made poles of acacia wood and overlaid them with gold. And he put the poles into the rings at the sides of the ark to bear the ark. You remember over the ark dwelt the tangible, visible glory of God. 
It was too holy to be touched by human hands, and therefore it was carried by poles. Verse 6 tells us, He also made the mercy seat of pure gold. Two and a half cubits was its length, and a cubit and a half its width. In the ark, beneath the lid, set the two tablets of the law. Over the ark rested the glory of God. And this presented a problem, for God loves us. But He can't accept us if we fail to keep the law's demands. And so how could a holy God, a loving God, reconcile the fact that He wanted to forgive us, but we had failed under the law? Well, the answer was found in between, in between God and the law at that blood-splattered mercy seat. It was here that the priest would take the blood of the sacrifice and he would sprinkle it on the mercy seat. And it was here where the blood satisfied the demands of the law and at the same time expressed the love of God. It was at that lid that God sought justice and that man found mercy. And this is why 1 John chapter 2, verse 2, calls Jesus our propitiation or place of mercy. Jesus has become our mercy seat. He is now the place where man can find mercy and where God judges sin. It's at the mercy seat. It's at Jesus Christ. He satisfies the law and he also bestows on us God's mercy. Well, the Ark of the Covenant was actually a small-scale model of God's throne in heaven, which is surrounded by angels. And thus, on top of the ark, Moses made two cherubim of beaten gold, we're told. He made them of one piece at the two ends of the mercy seat, one cherub at one end on, his side, on this side and the other cherub at the other end on that side. He made the cherubim at the two ends of one piece with the mercy seat, The cherubim spread out their wings above and covered the mercy seat with their wings. I want you to notice this. It's important. They faced one another and their faces were turned where? Toward the mercy seat. Which is also true of the angels in heaven today. You know, the angels have long been acquainted with God's might. And with God's wisdom. And with God's glory. And with God's truth. And with God's omnipotence and omniscience. But I want you to understand that now, in these last days, they have become preoccupied and captivated with God's grace. Where are the angels today looking? They're looking back at the cross. They're marveling at the cross and at the grace of God. Heaven's preoccupation today is not the physics of the universe. It's not the mysteries of the atom. It's not the DNA of life. It's God's willingness to suffer for sinners and bestow mercy on his enemies. That is where the angels are looking. They're looking at the mercy seat. Well, verses 10 through 16 describe the construction of the table of showbread. Verses 17 through 23 deal with the golden menorah or the seven-branch lampstand and the utensils that were needed for its upkeep. Verse 24 adds an interesting detail of a talent of pure gold. He made it. A talent, remember, was a unit of measurement equal to 100 pounds. 100 pounds of gold went into the making of the menorah. Verses 25 through 28 explain the construction of the altar of incense 
Verse 29 tells us that the anointing oil and the incense talks about its formation. It was used in the tabernacle. Chapter 38, verses 1 through 7 describe the construction of the altar of burnt offering. This was the barbecue pit. This was the place where the animals were slaughtered and sacrificed in the outer court. Now, cleansing of sin occurred at the altar, but washing happened at the laver. And washing was not a cleansing from sin necessarily as much as it was just sort of a washing off of the world and a preparation for worship. Verse 8 recounts the fabrication of the bronze basin or the laver, and I find this interesting. He made the laver of bronze and its base of bronze from the bronze mirrors of the serving women who assembled at the door of the tabernacle of meeting. Now remember, in ancient times there was no glass. And so the mirrors were made from polished brass. That's how they, they saw themselves, in the polished brass. And so notice what happens. These women turn over their bronze mirrors to Moses. Evidently, and I'm not making this up, it's right here in the text. Evidently, these women decided it was more important to create this labor and to prepare for worship than it was to primp on their appearance. And so, rather than primp, they thought sought to pray and seek the Lord. And so they turned over their mirrors and they turned it into preparation for worship. Isn't that interesting? Ephesians 5 instructs us to wash ourselves with the water of God's Word. And so, ladies and men too, I hope you're spending more time washing in the word than you are primping in the mirror. Isn't that interesting? Verse nine, verses 9 through 20 decide, describe the construction of the outer court, the white linen fence, the posts, the sockets, the hooks, the bands, the pegs. It all gets repeated right here. Verse 21, this is the inventory of the tabernacle. The tabernacle of the testimony, which was counted according to the commandment of Moses for the service of the Levites by the hand of Ithamar, son of Aaron the priest. Bezalel, the son of Uri, the son of Hur of the tribe of Judah, made all that the Lord had commanded Moses. And with him was Aholiab, the son of Ahizamach of the tribe of Dan, an engraver and designer, a weaver of blue, purple, and scarlet thread, and of fine linen. Ithamar tallied up the totals of these materials now notice verse 24 all the gold that was used in all the work of the holy place that is the gold of the offering was 29 talents how much is a talent 100 pounds and 730 shekels a shekel was a half an ounce according to the shekel of the sanctuary Add that together, that's 46,765 ounces of gold. And at $400 an ounce, today's going right, that's $18,706,000 worth of gold went into this tabernacle. That's just the gold. Verse 25 adds up the silver. And the silver from those who were numbered of the congregation was 100 talents and 1,775 shekels according to the shekel of the sanctuary 
a bika for each man, that is half a shekel, according to the shekel of the sanctuary, for everyone included in the numbering from 20 years old and above for 603,550 men. Now that didn't include the women and the children. And so when you add up the women and children, the men, it's possible that as many as 3 million people may have exited Egypt and followed Moses to the promised land. Well, they collected here 10,000 pounds of silver. Now today, silver goes for about $7 an ounce, I think. And so the total value of the silver would amount to $1.1 million. Verse 29. The offering of bronze was 70 talents and 2,400 shekels. That 7,000 pounds of bronze at $6 an ounce, that totals about $700,000, which gives us a grand total of gold, silver, and bronze, the metals that it took to build the tabernacle, brace yourself, $20,506,000 for a building that was 45 feet long by 15 feet wide or just 675 square feet, which is about the size of the brook. That's over $30,000 per square foot. That's a pretty expensive building, wouldn't you say? Chapter 39 describes the tailoring of the most important clothes ever made. The priestly garments that were designed and fashioned for the high priest Aaron. First the ephod, or the smock that covered the high priest's torso. And I think we've got a picture yeah, we, we brought back out Tabernacle Ken. We don't know where Barbie is, but there's Ken. Ken, the high priest. Well, the, the ephod was the smock that covered him. Next were the onyx stones that sat on his shoulders. You can see those in the other picture there. After that, the breastplate and the 12 stones that signified the 12 tribes of Israel. Always remember, God sees his children as priceless jewels. We are His valuables. We are objects of value in the eyes of God. Never forget that. And then the chains that hung from the breastplate, or hung the breastplate from the ephod. He talks about that. Then the robe with its hem of bales and pomegranates. You know, the bales speak of the gifts of the Holy Spirit. The pomegranates, the fruits of the Holy Spirit. And we need both the gifts of the Spirit and the fruits of the Spirit to effectively minister for Jesus. Then there's the priest's tunic or his undergarment. Then his turban or his headdress. And then the priestly pants. And remember, they were actually shorts, Bermuda shorts. And remember, the priests were forbidden to sag. This is important. Exodus 28 verse 42 says of the pants, They shall reach from the waist to the thighs. I want you to understand, the only pants God ever designed were forbidden to sag. I'm just sort of joking, sort of joking. Except for my son. <laughs> then there's the priestly sash or belt. And finally, the crown, the gold plate that read holiness to the Lord. Verse 32 tells us, 
Thus, all the work of the tabernacle of the tent of meeting was finished, and the children of Israel did according to all that the Lord had commanded Moses. So they did. Everything was built according to code. Every pole, every socket was fabricated precisely as God had instructed Moses. And they brought the tabernacle to Moses, the tent and all its furnishings, its clasp, its boards, its bars, its pillars, and its sockets, the covering of ram skin dyed red, the covering of badger skins, and the veil of the covering, and the ark of the testimony with its poles and the mercy seat, the table, all its utensils, and the showbread, the pure gold lampstand with its lamps, the lamps set in order, all its utensils and the oil for light, the gold altar, the anointing oil, and the sweet incense, the screen for the tabernacle door, the bronze altar, its grate of bronze, its poles and all its utensils, the labor with its base, the hangings of the cord, its pillars and its sockets, the screen for the court gate, its cords and its pegs, all the utensils for the service of the tabernacle, for the tent of meeting, and the garments of ministry, to minister in the holy place, the holy garments for Aaron the priest and his son's garments to minister as priest. Everything ordered by God was now ready on time. And oh, if all construction projects went that well, according to all that the Lord had commanded Moses, so the children of Israel did all the work. Then Moses looked over all the work, and indeed they had done it as the Lord had commanded, just so they had done it. In other words, it all passed inspection. And Moses blessed them. Moses now has all the tabernacle parts. But in chapter 40, God instructs him on their proper assembly. Then the Lord spoke to Moses saying, On the first day of the first month, you shall set up the tabernacle of the tent of meeting. You shall put it in the ark of the testimony... And partition off the ark with the veil. Assembly now is going to take place from the inside out. God is going to start with the innermost sanctum, the holy of holies. And then he's going to move outside the veil to the holy place. Verse 4. You shall bring in the table and arrange the things that are to be set in order on it. And you shall bring in the lampstand and light its lamps. You shall also set the altar of gold for the incense before the ark of the testimony and then put up the screen for the door of the tabernacle. Now he moves out to the outer court. Then you shall set the altar of the burnt offering before the door of the tabernacle of the tent of meeting. And you shall set the laver between the tabernacle of meeting and the altar and put water in it. Fill it up, man. And you shall set up the court all around and hang up the screen at the court gate. And you shall take the anointing oil. Now catch this. You shall take the anointing oil and anoint the tabernacle and all that is in it. And you shall hallow it and all its utensils and it shall be holy. And you shall anoint the altar of burnt offering and all its utensils and consecrate the altar. The altar shall be most holy. And you shall anoint the laver and its base and consecrate it. Ever assemble a lawnmower? Just... Because you mount the engine and you connect the crankcase and you release the blade and you attach the safety brake doesn't mean your new mower is ready for operation. You will have big problems if you try to crank it without filling it up with oil. And that's why Moses now anoints everything with oil. He's about to crank up the tabernacle. 
He's about to crank up the worship. But, but we need to anoint it with oil. And this is a vital lesson for us. We can, we can prepare ourselves to the nth detail. We, we can work on all the details in our life. We, we can, we can, we're ready to go. We're ready to crank up for the Lord. But first, before you do anything else, you need to be filled with the oil. The oil of the Holy Spirit. We need to make sure that we're greased and lubricated by the Holy Spirit. Verse 12. Then you shall bring Aaron and his sons to the door of the tabernacle of meeting and wash them with water. You shall put the holy garments on Aaron and anoint him and consecrate him that he may minister to me as priest. And you shall bring his sons and clothe them with tunics. You shall anoint them as you anointed their father that they may minister to me as priests. For their anointing shall surely be an everlasting priesthood throughout all generations. Thus Moses did according to all that the Lord had commanded him, so he did. It's interesting. Eighteen times in these two chapters we are told that Moses did all the Lord had commanded him. I want you to understand, Moses not only heard God's word, but he obeyed it. You know, lots of people have been up on the mountaintop and have received instructions from God. But what set Moses apart was what he did when he came down from that mountain. He followed God's instructions precisely. He obeyed the Lord in every detail. Can the same be said of you? I hope at the end of my life they'll be able to stand and say, He did all that the Lord commanded him. Verse 17. And it came to pass in the first month of the second year, on the first day of the month, it's been an entire year now since they've been set free from slavery, that the tabernacle was raised up. On the anniversary of the Exodus, they dedicate a house of worship. How appropriate. And so Moses raised up the tabernacle, fastened its sockets, set up its boards, put in its bars, and raised up its pillars. And he spread out the tent over the tabernacle and put the covering of the tent on top of it, as the Lord had commanded Moses, he took the testimony of the Ten Commandments and he put it into the ark, inserted the poles through the rings of the ark and put the mercy seat on top of the ark and he brought the ark into the tabernacle, hung up the veil of the covering and partitioned off the ark of the testimony as the Lord had commanded Moses. He put the table in the tabernacle of meeting on the north side of the tabernacle outside the veil. And he set the bread in order upon it before the Lord as the Lord had commanded Moses. He put the lampstand in the tabernacle of meeting across from the table on the south side of the tabernacle. And he lit the lamps before the Lord, notice, as the Lord had commanded Moses. He put the gold altar in the tabernacle of meeting in front of the veil. And he burned sweet incense on it as the Lord had commanded Moses. He hung up the screen at the door of the tabernacle. And he put the altar of burnt offering before the door of the tabernacle of the tent of meeting. And he offered upon it the burnt offering and the grain offering as the Lord had commanded Moses. He set the labor between the tabernacle of meeting and the altar and put water there for washing. And Moses, Aaron, and his sons would wash their hands and their feet with water from it. Whenever they went into the tabernacle of meeting and when they came near the altar, they washed as the Lord had commanded Moses. And he raised up the court all around the tabernacle and the altar and hung up the screen of the court gate. So Moses finished the work. It's all assembled. The tent has been raised. The furniture is in place. 
The outer court has been erected. The priests are all washed and ready. Everything's been anointed with oil. There's only one missing component. God. What good is a place of worship if the God who is supposed to be worshipped never shows up? Guys, this is why coming to church is more than just coming to a building or singing a few songs or listening to a sermon. You have not really worshipped until you have met with and experienced God. It reminds me of the little boy who went home from church one Sunday morning and he sat down and he wrote God a letter. He said, Dear God, we had a good time at church today. Just wish you had been there. Verse 34 depicts the tabernacle's grand opening. <laughs> and it doesn't disappoint. Then the cloud covered the tabernacle of meeting. And the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. The Shekinah glory as the Hebrews called it. The tangible, visible presence of God fills up the tabernacle. Its precincts are permeated with God's glory. His light, the radiation of His presence, fills the temple, the tabernacle. And Moses was not able to enter the tabernacle. Notice this. Moses was not able to enter the tabernacle of meeting because the cloud rested above it and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. God revealed Himself in such a heavy, awesome way. His glory was so thick and overwhelming that Moses couldn't even enter the tabernacle that he had just constructed. And I believe that this is what God wants to do in our lives tonight. He wants to pour out His glory to such an extent to where it is too much for us to handle. He wants to overwhelm us. He wants to blow us away with His love and His joy and His peace and His goodness and His grace. And I am convinced He not only wants to do that in you, but He wants to do that in us in this church, in this place. Lord Jesus, show us your glory. Lord Jesus, tonight, fill this place with your holiness and with your grace and with your glory. Verse 36. Whenever the cloud was taken up from above the tabernacle, the children of Israel would go onward in all their journeys. But if the cloud was not taken up, then they did not journey Till the day that it was taken up. For the cloud of the Lord was above the tabernacle by day. And fire was over it by night. In the sight of all the house of Israel. Throughout all their journeys. And there we have the book of Exodus. And so guess what we're going to start next week. The book of Leviticus. And so read the first five chapters of the book of Leviticus, and that's what we'll cover next Sunday, next Sunday night. You got the tabernacle down? Everybody understand the tabernacle? You're now experts on the tabernacle. Everybody got that? Good. We had pictures tonight. You always learn better with pictures. And remember the, the, you remember about the pre-shorts. What was the significant thing, BJ, about the pre-shorts? 
They didn't sag. That's right, man. That's good. <laughs> Any questions on anything we talked about tonight? Any questions? Yes. <laughs> Tabernacle Ken? <laughs> I don't. I found Tabernacle Ken on the internet somewhere. I don't. I don't know where he's hanging out these days. <laughs> It looks like a Ken doll that they dressed up. It really does. Well, Lord, we thank you tonight for your word. And we thank you, Lord, for the great things that are going to be happening this week here at Calvary Chapel. Be with our middle schoolers and their chaperones and teachers. Be with our vacation Bible school kids and all the folks that will be working with them. Do a great work this week, Lord. And we thank you for tonight. We thank you for your word, Lord. And we are amazed at the richness of Scripture at the incredible lessons that you have for us. Continue to teach us. Continue to speak to us. Bless us, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.